0: So near the end of his life, there's this man, and his name is John. And he is at this point the last of the living apostles of Jesus. And near the end of his life, he writes a story about Jesus. And in this story, he talks about who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did and and the mission that Jesus committed himself to. But within this same story, John is showing us something about Jesus, and he's showing us that Jesus is something greater. More specifically, that Jesus is greater than all of the amazing ways that God has impacted people, touched people, and worked in the past. He puts Jesus forward over against all the ways that we have come into contact with God and shows how in those situations, Jesus is surpassing them all by far. Now today, we pick up in chapter seven with that story Jesus is, or John, is telling. And the story revolves around a holiday. Let me read it to you. And then after we get it on our grid, Let me walk through with you the story that John is telling. Here's what it says in John chapter 7. So after this, he writes, after Jesus claimed to be this bread of life that people needed to eat and his disciples couldn't handle the cannibalistic tendencies and sound of it and they all abandoned him, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposefully staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast or holiday of tabernacles was near, Jesus's brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea, which that's kind of like go to the place that they want to kill you. That's family love. Would you agree? You want to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So Jesus told him, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. And having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he also went, but not publicly, but in secret, now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that guy? And among the crowd, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach? The Jews were amazed and asked, where did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him, that's a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though not really Moses, came from the patriarchs, because of that, a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. It says at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had still not come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Now the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things, and The chief priests and the Pharisees send temple guards to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am going, you cannot come. So they said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where will he go? Where our people live scattered around the Greeks? Will he be teaching them there? What does he mean when he said, you look for me, but you won't find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now on the last day and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So the people were divided over Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees and they asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but the mob that knows nothing of the law, well, there's a curse on them. Now Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And so they replied to him, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Let me unpack the story for you. A few moments ago, we saw a video talking about people's favorite Thanksgiving traditions. The food seemed to be pretty prominent in that, didn't it? talking about their eating patterns, what they like to eat, what kind of things they do. The one guy going, yeah, we go after wild game, like squirrel and possum, I think, or something like that. I I don't know what your feast looked like, but we have these Thanksgiving traditions, don't we? One of these traditions that I've seen crops up again and again is that when families, especially if they're able to sit around a table, will often go around in some format and share something that they're grateful or thankful for. You ever see this? Ever been a part of this? No? Anyone ever do this? No, because the gratitude of the Lord does not dwell in our hearts, right? And and the thought of doing something like that is just something that's like, oh my gosh, don't put me on the spot. Well, I need to share with you a Thanksgiving tradition that just takes it and makes it exponentially worse. My daughter, who was recently engaged, celebrated Thanksgiving with her fiancé's family in Missouri this year. And they have a tradition somewhat like this, but they go around the table and each shares something that they're thankful for. But they don't do it once, they go around three times. Oh my gosh, if you weren't dying the first time, you have two more rounds. Well, I thought it would be a crime if we didn't allow you the opportunity to share in their awkwardness this morning. So what I want you to do is share briefly with someone around you one thing that you're grateful for. And you've got to play by a certain set of rules. Because the rules in their household is you cannot cop out and say something like God or Jesus or anything like that, all right? You've got to make it more tangible. I'm also going to add this rule. Please don't cop out and just talk to your spouse. Like, 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 like grow someone, talk to someone new, all right? I mean, we, we can do this, right? Turn to someone around you and share something briefly something that you are grateful for. Go. Now, here's what I want you to do. Imagine for a moment, you are at that Thanksgiving dinner table. And you're going around and you're sharing. Or imagine that you're in this room and you're turning around and you're sharing. And you know that the spirit of this is sharing something you're grateful for. Now, I find in our holidays, we have all kinds of strange traditions. And one of the traditions that I find is common is exposing our children to strange relatives. (laughs) People that we don't see get invited, and there's always this low-grade angst that's among certain people at the dinner table going, what are they going to say? How is this gonna go? Who is going to tackle them when it starts going off the rails? We know this, right? We've experienced this. We've been a part of this, right? I guarantee you, all of you have been a part of this. And if you're like, I've never been a part of this, that's because you're the culprit, all right? (laughs) I want you to imagine that you're at that table or you've just had the discussion and it's going around and people are sharing what they're thankful for and you're coming around and you're watching the flow and it's coming up to Weird Uncle Frank. Everyone has a Weird Uncle Frank and it's coming up to Weird Uncle Frank and you just don't know what Weird Uncle Frank is going to say. And someone's saying, I'm thankful for my children. And it goes, and someone says, I'm thankful for my job. And someone says, I'm thankful for for being healed through this thing that, that, that I've been suffering through. And someone is just thankful for just the joy of life. And then it comes to weird Uncle Frank. And weird Uncle Frank takes a deep breath. And he pauses. And he stands up, and you know it's gonna go bad. And he looks at everyone around and in a loud voice proclaims, you should give thanks to me. I am the source of your blessing. I am the source of your goodness. I am from whom all blessings flow. You should give thanks to me. Now what is your reaction in a moment like that? Some of you are like, it's Uncle Frank, right? Uncle Frank has always been full of it. Uncle Frank has not failed to convince. There are others of you who might not like Uncle Frank too much. And you're saying things and you're thinking things in your mind like, he's a mad man. This guy's just nuts. Or he's full of himself. Or can anyone be a bigger ego bag? You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, how do you respond to someone who says things like these. Go with me into John chapter seven, because the entire episode that I have just read to you revolves around a holiday. And the name of this holiday in Hebrew, which you may actually come into contact with today is pronounced Sukkoth but it gets translated as something like the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Like Thanksgiving, this is a holiday celebrating with gratitude the blessings of God. But instead of revolving around a turkey, it revolves around other symbols and other kinds of things. And what I need to do with you this morning is describe to you what this holiday that Jesus was celebrating is all about so that the impact of what Jesus is saying is not lost on you. Now, in the Hebrew way of doing holidays, there are seven major holidays on their calendar. We all have major holidays on our calendar, right? You can go through what our typically celebrated holidays are. And I bet there would be something like this. Well, there's, there's New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. That's like a package. It always goes together, right? There's New Year's Day and maybe Valentine's Day and maybe St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't matter that you're not Irish. Everyone seems to embrace it anyway. And then, of course, there's Easter. And then you come along to Memorial Day and Fourth of July. And then there's Labor Day and Halloween. And then we have Thanksgiving. And then we have Christmas. Now, I would argue these are probably the 10 major holidays that we celebrate. Now, I know that there are some of you here today going, well, what about Veterans Day? What about Juneteenth? What about MLK Day? What about any other day? President's Day has always been special to me. Why didn't you mention that? I know there's more holidays. But in our general culture, there seems to be those Big Ten. Would you agree? In Jesus' day, they also had all kinds of holiday, but they seem to anchor in to the Big Ten. Seven, four in the spring, three in the fall, and the last of the fall holidays, a lot like Thanksgiving, was Sukkoth, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Let me describe to you or show you in Leviticus where the the, the idea behind this holiday comes from. Look at what the writer says. On the first day of this holiday, because by the way, we do a holiday But they knew how to party. They did holidays. Why waste a good thing and reduce it to a single day? So what we have here is a week that's going to be laid out of celebrating. But on the first day, what you do is you take branches from a luxuriant tree, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and you rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Does that sound kind of weird? Sounds awesome, I'm with you, But except for this freak, does it sound kinda weird? <laughs> Is it any weirder than cutting corn stalks and tying them up to your banisters or taking pumpkins out of a field and spreading them around your house? We all have different ways of taking agriculture and celebrating. They took luxuriant trees and you rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. What do you do with the tree? You like, look at it, you set it up, you go, hey, that's a nice tree. Well, it says, celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. You know what you'd do with these branches? You'd build a hut. And you would go and live in it for seven days. But I've got a 6,000 square foot home. Go live in a hut for seven days, which I think you actually do. He's a hunter, he goes out and lives in duck blinds. All native born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites living in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What this day is doing is the same thing Thanksgiving is doing. It is remembering something that God did for us in a way that God provided for us in the past. Except instead of pilgrims coming to a new land without a harvest and hungry, and depending on God to produce something so that they could eat. Ancient Israelites had to wander through a desert and they had to do it for 40 years and they didn't have permanent homes. They had to sleep under the stars or in tents or in makeshift shelters that could be lifted up and easily transported. So what Israelites would do every fall is go out and pluck some branches, find some wood, Build up a shelter and live in it in seven days so as to remember how God had delivered them back then. It's kind of like Woodstock meets Burning Man Festival for seven days last fall when this celebration takes place. It was mid-October this year. Last fall, I was in Philadelphia And I was in an area of Philadelphia that would be equivalent to, like, maybe the North Shore around here, a very wealthy kind of area. And there was a prominent Jewish synagogue with a whole lot of land on a very prominent, busy intersection. And it happened to be in the festival of Sukkoth. It was fascinating. Hundreds of thousands of cars driving by on this intersection every day in this very opulent area, in this very beautiful piece of property with this very amazing synagogue and all scattered throughout the property were these little makeshift, hovel, homeless, tarp shelter kind of things that people who worshipped there had set up on the land still celebrating Sukkoth to this Day And much like Thanksgiving, it was a feast, it was a celebration. You can't think about this like some survival show, like Alone or something like that, where you're just trying to kind of make it for seven days. No, you've got the, you know, the tailgate is going. You know, are you with me? You, you've got the grill going. People are eating, people are g- drinking, people are celebrating, people are bringing food, and they're celebrating the fruit of the harvest, much like we do with thanksgiving with an idea in mind of gratitude that God has provided and God still provides and so we can live in hope and faith that God will provide still it's what this exercise of gratitude is really all about but instead of symbols like turkeys and pilgrim hats They revolved around a different set of symbols, most specifically, water. The fall is the dry season in Israel, much like it is here in the States. Every fall we watch the corn start to turn from green to a dry, crisp, golden brown, and we live in the Great Lakes region, which means we're going to get dumped on by snow and rain and everything else for the next few months, but that is not the Middle East. This time of year brings the dry season. When the ground gets hard, craggled. When things get dry, when streams dry up. When the very source of water in life begins to wane. And it said that if you would celebrate tabernacles in Jerusalem, it was a pilgrim day that beyond the temporary shelters that you would live in, beyond the feast and the party, you would celebrate around the symbol of water. And what the priest would do is every day he would come down from the temple and he would go down to the Gihon spring. And what he would do is draw water from the Gihon spring. And as he would draw water in this vessel, the people would be singing these Psalms about the coming Messiah. Psalms 113 and 14 and 15 and 16, and most notably 18, where they would sing things like, Yahweh, save us. Yahweh, grant us success. Or if if you've been here on Palm Sunday, Yahweh, Hoshiana, Hosanna, to the one who will deliver us. And they would sing these songs about God, who is the one who provides the water of life. And they would pour the water on the ground, taking something precious into the hard, dry ground, letting it drink it up and evaporate, going, Lord, you are the one who provides us with what we need, streams of living water. For life, This entered so much into the ethos of the ancient Israelites that the prophets will talk about a day when God will return and the ground will burst forth with springs of water, water that will nurture the land, springs of life. And here we find Jesus on the greatest day of the feast, surrounding the gratitude of how God provides and God is the source of life with these water rituals happening, and look at what Jesus says. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me, come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And because people are dense and we are too, John interprets what Jesus is saying. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit of God who would be given to everyone believing in him. Imagine it's Thanksgiving dinner. Imagine you're sharing what you're grateful for. Imagine going through the celebration and then there's weird uncle Frank and he stands up and he goes, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart, whose heart? From Uncle Frank's. (laughs) The scriptures themselves declare Uncle Uncle Frank says, they will flow from me. How do you respond to a guy like that? What do you do with that? Well, like most awkward holiday moments, you don't make eye contact. (laughs) You put your head down and you hope it will silently go away. But Jesus won't let up. There's this uh, New Testament commentator I love to follow. His name is Gary Burge and he has this kind of funny chart, this, this way he kind of puts it. Let me share it with you here today. He gives a number of scenes that happen around this, quote, Thanksgiving dinner. And a number of questions start coming up from people about weird Uncle Frank. You know what I mean? And the first is this. They go, this guy's saying some, like, amazing things. He's teaching. Where did this guy learn all this? You know how Jesus responds? You know where I learned it? Heaven. Heaven. So they come back. Well, where's this guy even from? You know how Jesus responds? Heaven. (laughs) So they push back. Where is he going to go? What happens from here? Where is he going? Heaven. He won't let up. What do you do when Uncle Frank stands up and he says, I've been told this stuff from God. The wisdom I'm sharing here with you, God told me. How do you respond to Uncle Frank? What do you do when your kids say, hey, like, where did Uncle Frank even come from? Where does he live? And Uncle Frank goes, oh, I'm from heaven. (laughs) Is Uncle Frank spending the weekend with us? Where does he live? Oh, he's going back home. Well, where's home? Heaven. And the people were divided. They didn't know what to do with him. Read the story. Go back through. It's fascinating. Some, some look at Jesus and they go, he's out of his mind. Some are looking at Jesus going, how can a guy be more full of himself? This guy is on some ego trip or worse. This guy is a liar and fool. Others are looking and going, he's demon-possessed. This is evil incarnate right before our eyes. And yet there are others who are inclined to believe. Because as they look at what Jesus is saying, and they look at what Jesus is teaching, and they look at what Jesus is doing, the other options just don't add up. How can someone this wise be written off a fool on this line? He's opening heaven before our eyes and teaching things that people don't know and they make sense and they cut to the heart. How could this man be evil who is doing these amazing things of God and they don't know what to do with him? It doesn't sound to me too much different from today. People today don't know what to do with Jesus and find themselves... Responding to him in all different kinds of ways. Some write him off as a madman. Others think him a liar. Others call on him as Lord. Others find other ways, thinking of things and other things, like maybe he was a prophet or just a good moral teacher. There's a quote I want to share with you today from C.S. Lewis. I love this quote. It comes out of a series of radio broadcasts he did while London was being bombed in World War II. It was later codified into a book called Mere Christianity. I'm going to share with you the quote in full. I think it's worth repeating. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus or Uncle Frank said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him as Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that, op- that option open to us. He did not intend to. Great moral teachers do not stand up at Thanksgiving and say, I am the source of life. Unless unless they actually are. And this is the story that John wants you to enter into because he has a story and he wants you to identify with that story and wrestle in the same way that those people wrestled back then. How will you respond? This is the question of John how will you respond? Because Jesus does not leave open the option of taking him as merely a prophet, a sage, a wise man, or a seer. No, he doesn't leave that on the table. You cannot stand up and say, I am the stream of life, and life flows from me to you. The scriptures declare it about me. You cannot say that unless it is true, and still be a good moral teacher. In each and every generation, and I believe to each and every person, the question has to be asked, how will I respond? What will I do with Jesus? How will I wrestle through it? And this is the question that I want to pose to you. How will you respond to Jesus' call on your life? Invitation to your life. Demand on your life. How will you respond to him? Will you write him off? Will you laugh him away? Will you seek to string him up and kill him? Or will you come to see him for who he claims to be and bow unbended knee before him? Because Jesus says, if you do, streams of life and God's presence will flow from me to you. And I think I can speak for Jesus by adding a final question or challenge. I dare you, I think he would say, to try it or to try it anew, to dare to take him at his word and to see if who he is and what he says holds up to be true. That's the story we're invited into on Jesus' Thanksgiving. So I want to invite you to rise. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as we pause here, we're going to take a right turn into a practice that we like to do here at Fellowship of Faith called Repentance. Repentance. It's a churchy word that just means turn. And in this context, turning to God, turning to Christ, turning to him on the basis of who he says he is. It's an invitation he keeps open. And it often starts with some introspection, a little bit of confession, a little bit of self-evaluation, a little bit of coming clean, a little bit of daring to trust God and say, Lord, I throw myself on your... Mercy, honest about who I am. So I want to invite you into time of prayer, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll worship the one who claims to be the stream of the water of life. Lord Jesus, the invitation you make was not for them alone for each and every human being to come to you, to call on you, to believe in you, to eat from you and drink from you, or any other way we can put it. It's to trust you with our lives and our souls and our future. And Lord, we come to you in that today. It's easy, Lord, I find. To trust and put our trust in so many other things. To seek meaning in life and purpose and hope and a future and so many other things. That promise to be good or faithful. But Lord, you stand before them all saying, trust in me. Lord, move us to give our trust to you today. Move those of us who are struggling to trust in you. Move those of us who are afraid to trust in you. Help those of us who are here in this place seeking to call on your name. Flow, Lord Jesus, flow. Pour your spirit upon your people. Hear our prayer. Forgive our sins. And may we live in the new birth that comes in your name. Amen. We're gonna sing a song today that I think speaks into this in a really cool way. May it be Jesus' message of hope and invitation to you this morning.